note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. Hi, everyone. I know we've been absent for a bit, but we're back today to talk about a really exciting new game. Today, we're talking about a game born in a pool-sized bathtub of Duplo bricks, inspired by Nintendo's own Captain Toad, and created by a team behind a game played by one in every 100 people on Earth. That's a lot of people, Brian. It's a ton of people. Yes. Lego Brick Tales, developed by Clockstone Studio, is out now. But its journey from concept to launch is a long one. You actually need to go back quite a bit to trace the roots for this game. All right, Brian, let's do this. Rock on. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Why not? Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. The story of Lego Brick Tales begins with two friends in Austria. Clockstone Studios co-founders Chi Do Din and Stefan Sosau were childhood friends who went to high school together in Innsbruck, Austria, which isn't too far from my stomping grounds, right, Brian? Yeah, that's cool. So is it like, do you guys know each other? Is it that tiny a town? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. It reminds me when Europeans Ask me if I know someone in Texas, right? Do you know a John in Texas, Brian? I know everybody in Texas. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a no. tiny, quaint little state. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it, luckily, Austria is not that big. Austria is the size of Maine, and Innsbruck is probably about a I don't know, six to seven to eight-hour drive from Vienna, Austria. So Innsbruck itself is nestled between these incredible Alps, and it's a beautiful, beautiful town. And it's quite fun that these two friends met in that town and created Clockstone Studio. During my teens, I was interested, as a teen is, in just games in general, so I would play a lot. This is Chi speaking. And I think I had a creative streak always, so that was just me. And interestingly enough, it was Stefan. We were classmates, and we were kind of like the art kids in the class who would like draw and just do creative stuff. Just later on, like after school, like high school, when we started college around the time, we would try to figure out if there's anything to do in creative fields. Funny thing, I think, is for me, I wasn't really playing that many games as a kid because we never had a computer at home. This is Stefan speaking. Actually, at an, a very early age, I was thinking about games a lot while not being able to play them. So I got into drawing and I got into thinking about how to create games more on an early stage, I think. So as soon as I got a computer, the computers I had to work with were always very old. And I got to play old games and I got to experience old technology and working with a lot of limitations. So... I think that was maybe a part of the spark of creativity, I think. Chi said that it was other friends who got them involved in creating their very first game. 
he was making a game on his own time. He was coding a game on his own time. And it's like through those channels, we kind of got together in a group and it kind of took off from there because we just decided, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we contribute art to this? And he went like, sure. And then things just snowballed into essentially what would become our first game, Avencast. And that's like in the wake of that, we would found the company and everything else, you know. Avencast. Rise of the Mage began life as a hobby project meant to mimic the best elements of action role-playing games like Diablo. After four years of development, it was released for PC in late 2007. And with one game under their belt, the small team at the studio started wrestling with what to do next. Here's G. We started founding a company really just to publish Havencast. That was like the first step. And afterwards, we would kind of assess, you know, what's the situation? What do we want to do? And obviously, game development and sustaining game development really is not an easy job to do. So we kind of took this as an A-side to make non-game projects to secure ourselves a little bit. And it kind of developed into those two lanes that we essentially run in with Clockstone. In those early years of the studio, the team supplemented their income by working on non-gaming software like a product presentation app, a lighting configuration system, a virtual company tour, and even software for tracking live-fire gunshots in real time. The shot detection thing was just one particular person who was like a hunter, professional hunter, and he had some system running that would do like a shot simulation software, that sort of thing. And he essentially just hired us for that particular project. In 2009, the studio launched its second game, Greed, Black Border, a hack-and-slash action role-playing game set in a futuristic universe. It landed to mixed reviews, but more importantly, it started the relationship with publisher and developer Head Up Games, which would go on to publish Lego Brick Tales. Dieter Schuller's love for gaming can probably be traced back to his early teens, not just because, like most teens of his era, he enjoyed the occasional game of Sonic, but because he was really good at playing games. The first Sega Master Championship in Germany, the official one, was at a time when you had to send in screenshots to prove your points, which meant actual pictures taken by camera of your TV. And then basically it was the first Sega championship and it was 200 kids in a hall playing Sonic for one minute who gets the most points. And I actually won, ended up with a Game Gear with a TV adapter as a prize as a 14-year-old kid. But despite that auspicious start and his growing love for video games, Dieter decided when he graduated high school that he should study law rather than pursue a job in game development. I think for a lot of people, this would have been one of those crossroad moments in life. And I guess to some degree it was. But Dieter told us that as he wrapped up his law degree, he came to the realization that he actually didn't want to practice law. Instead, he decided to go back to his first love, video games. I was always a gamer. And then I basically, during my study time, because law studies are super boring, to be fair, I ended up doing a lot of Quake and Wolfenstein modding and somehow got into the whole modding team and modding scene. And that side showed me that, hey, you can actually, if you market it well, you can have like 150,000 people play your Quake mod. And I picked up on the whole industry thought during my study time. But as I was already studying, I said, okay, I'm going to finish this and then I'm going to move into this industry, which was very young at that point. So instead of following along that law degree path, he got an internship at Ubisoft, spending a year essentially learning about the marketing and public relations of video games. 
And then he turned that into the beginning of a lifetime career in the games industry. So it's 2008, and Dieter is working at RTL Interactive in Germany, and he can't help but notice a sudden wave of tremendous indie games starting to hit the market. He spotted an opportunity. So basically, when actually I realized small teams can make a difference, and I wanted to be part of that really exciting new venture and new trend in the gaming industry that you don't need the publisher as a gatekeeper and large teams with hundreds of people, but that actually smaller teams can create really creative and innovative products. And I wanted to be a part of that, but I'm not a developer, so I try to set the stage for those teams. In 2009, Dieter launched HeadUp, a company focused on helping indies bring their games to market. In Dieter's words, the publisher wasted a year and all of their initial money on their very first game and working, setting things up. But that year and money wasn't a total loss. Dieter said he learned a lot from the process. Once they had their legs under them again, they invested in two more games. One was a title called Greed, which was developed by Clockstone Studio and published in 2009. It was, Dieter said, the start of a beautiful relationship, one that would eventually lead to Lego Brick Tales. Here's Dieter. They were basically introduced through an industry colleague. And then we met the team and we really liked each other from the very first day. And we gave them the vision of the game we wanted to do. And they have done a title before that called Avencast, which was in a fantasy setting, an action RPG. So they seemed to be the right team to tackle our vision. And then we started working together and it was a really good partnership. In the following year, 2010, HeadUp released five games, then seven in 2011, including Bridge Constructor. Within a few more years, they were connected to seemingly every big-name indie title on the market. The Binding of Isaac, Terraria, Limbo, Super Meat Boy. That's largely thanks to Edmund McMillan, one of the people behind both Isaac and Meat Boy. He basically gave me a video pitch I could forward to developers saying, hey, if you want to work with somebody, work with Dieter, he's the one who's actually paying royalties. And it was just a super positive, nice video, better than any business pitch. The indie scene at that time was very small, to be fair. So the word spread that we're just doing honest business. So people started approaching us as well because friends told them about us. And that way it somehow spiraled. And then we, for the second and third wave of indies, we worked with a lot of great talent. And we still do, for example, on Thunderful, we're now publishing Super Meat Boy Forever, working with Tommy very closely on this one. Most of our developers are really friends by now. So for some, we're invited to their weddings or we invite them to our vacation or something. I think the common factor is that we all love games and we love games apart from the mainstream. All right, Brian, before we continue, I kind of wanted to rewind a bit to that comment you just made about HeadUp's history. You mentioned there were seven games in 2011 and specifically called out Bridge Constructor. Yes, good catch, Ethan. This is a very important development, pun intended, in the company's history and the eventual birth of LEGO Brick Tales. If you're not familiar, Bridge Constructor is a pretty basic physics-based puzzle game. In it, you build a bridge, often a rickety bridge, and then you see if a truck can make its way over it without the whole thing falling apart. Spectacularly. Yes, spectacularly. So Bridge Constructor became a pivotal game for both the developers and the publishers, a title that would eventually inspire a LEGO group designer to pitch a brick version of the game. But it started life in the most mundane of ways, a need for cash basically was born out of the idea to make a project with quick cash flow. Here's Dieter. 
because there was all these like farming simulators in the market. So we figured, hey, why don't we do also a small simulation game? It has to do with the way on how retail pays for products because you get paid first and then you return later and so forth. But the point was we wanted to tap into that simulation market. And long story short, in the end, basically there were some projects, um, Pontifex and Bridge Builder, who were in the market before actually we came up with Bridge Constructor. But we made a very similar game in terms of its inspiration. Clockson did a great job on making it more mass appealing and more colorful. In the beginning, Bridge Constructor was a pure PC game and we didn't know the mobile market. And somehow Clockson and us got talking and said, hey, there's something called smartphones and we're using an engine which is compatible. Let's go to mobile. So while on PC, the game was mediocre successful because it was just a box with a very bad cover, to be fair, the mobile version really spiked and we were really fortunate to be on that first wave of premium store games. I think by now, Bridge Constructor has tapped into... I mean, we've reached over 80 million players on the brand worldwide. So let's let this sink in for a second. 80 million people have played one of the Bridge Constructor games to date. That's like saying one in every 100 people, unless my math is off, (laughs) on the planet have played the game. That's crazy. While Hedup had the idea, it was up to Clockstone to breathe life into it. But even they weren't convinced it was going to be a meaningful creation. Here's Chi. That was already essentially a collaboration between, you know, Hedup Games, Dieter and Marcel in particular, and us, in the sense that they would have some ideas what would be interesting games to make, and they suggested Bridge Constructor as like a port. And we took this as an opportunity to say, okay, let's do this. We didn't quite think it would be as successful as it was, but it was just, you know, here's another thing, let's do this, okay, that sort of thing. We were pretty much on our low point when we made Bridge Constructor. Here's Stefan again. We were trying out a bunch of different things, not only games, but also visualizations and small other applications, but it wasn't really going well. Basically, as soon as we were done with Greed, we made some laser shot games and some small hunting simulations. We were just running out of motivation and hope. (laughs) You kind of need to take a big breath and store enough air if you want to survive as a game developer. Back in the day, there weren't nearly as many opportunities as now, which is a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. We didn't really have figured out how to make games, even if we tried for years and years. We thought of ourselves still as beginners and we didn't really understand why it didn't work out. Almost nobody took this project really seriously. (laughs) So we weren't really thinking, okay, this will be our last thing we try and then we give up. It's not about that because we thought, okay, it's not a big deal. We're doing this, but we just didn't expect anything. The Clockstone team worked diligently on Bridge Constructor and released it in 2011 to very little fanfare. It was, in their minds, just another way to keep their head above water as they searched for a title, an idea that could earn them some recognition. As they wrapped up development, some at the studio were even thinking of leaving. Here's Stefan again. A few of us were still focused on creating games. I think G and and me were one of the core game people that were thinking, okay, we want to really make games for a living and we love this media. We were thinking about, okay, it would make sense to close or leave the company and start our own thing. That would maybe have been an option, but didn't come so far. And then 
something surprising happened. The game absolutely blew up. Yeah, and it was sort of like a two or three stage rocket. Not just one blow up, but a series of them. Here's Dieter. I remember when we released the game, I was sitting at the Nordic Game Conference in Malmö in Sweden, and we released it. I looked at the numbers of the first day on mobile and it was like 200 units or something. And I said, okay, it's going to make its money back. It wasn't that expensive either. And then basically on the second day, it suddenly said 2,000 units. Third day was like 20,000. And it just skyrocketed and we had no idea why. The next big moment for Bridge Constructor came when it took off in the U.S., thanks to a Reddit post showing a truck seemingly just barely making it across a bridge only to flip over and blow up. The success took everyone by surprise, even Chi and Stefan. I don't think we ever celebrated really big. I think it was just a realization of, oh, wow, okay, this is doing well, and the company is going. Yeah, it feels kind of a little bit unreal because... Here's Stefan again. Yeah, you just don't expect this to happen. And if I think back, I would have loved to think a little bit more about certain aspects of the game. Like, obviously, as an artist about the visuals, we went with a very simple style for the games. And a lot of those have not so pretty sides as well. So obviously, I'm thinking about that a lot. And it could have been better. But at the same time, it kind of is a valuable experience to know, okay, you don't have to get it perfect to get some success. There is some luck involved. There is some hard work involved. So that boosted our confidence a little bit, I think. The team immediately realized they were onto something and started working on sequels. First was Playground, then Medieval, and Stunts. Each seemed to increase the popularity of the growing brand. And then came another explosion of popularity, this time delivered with the aid of famed publisher Valve. The idea is one of those ideas which you just have in the shower, basically. Here's Dieter. Like I said, I love mashups. Um, I've been always a fan. I mean, we mashed up a game where we mashed up blackjack mechanics with Super Street Fighter 2 visuals, where basically instead of the fights, you battle yourself in blackjack rounds, but the rest looks 100% Street Fighter 2 from Super Nintendo. But also on musical side, I love crossovers. I've grown up in the 90s, where crossover always was a big thing. So the idea of mashing up things, um, somehow to me personally, it's very appealing. And somehow we had the idea of doing this, uh, hey, we have the physics-based gameplay of Bridge Constructor, and then there's the velocity gameplay of the Portal games. What happens if we combine those two? Because the whole thought of how fast you access a portal is the same speed you exit the portal. I just felt it really fits well with the physics of Bridge Constructor. That's where the idea came from. And I think it took about a year to one and a half years to actually convince Valve that this is a game that should be made. But once they reach their decision, they've been a, a tremendously great partner. Dieter spent years pitching the idea to Valve to absolute silence. He never got a no, he never got a yes, nothing. Then they found a champion in a Europe-based Valve employee. He loved the idea and helped get Valve on board. Bridge Constructor Portal was announced in early December 2017 and released about a week later. It sold half a million copies in about six months. Next, Dieter set his eyes on another mashup, focused on a popular comic and an even more popular TV show. The result was Bridge Constructor The Walking Dead, which was released in 2020. 
Looking back now, everyone involved in the Bridge Constructor series of games realizes what an outsized impact it had on their lives. Here's Chi. For us, from the get-go with the first Bridge Constructor, it saved us as company. I think creatively it's interesting because, you know, tying back to the previous point of where you take your inspiration from, it's not something that we foresaw, yeah, let's do Bridge Constructor for 10 years or something like that. Making Bridge Constructor games, it almost has a workmanship-like quality to it, where you say, okay, this is the thing that brought success, and let's find something interesting to do with it and really try to make it as good as we can and also find new opportunities that have arisen, like making Bridge Constructor Portal in particular and Bridge Constructor Walking Dead to see how we can evolve this. Because the other way would almost be like as a game developer or as a creative mind, I would say, you're tempted to be very bold. You know, you make bold choices and make big changes and try to really go far and do different things. But for us, it's like it has become these different things where we make Bridge Constructor and it's almost like we are slowly honing the knife to become as tuned in as we are. Our portfolio has been very diverse on Head Upside. This is Dieter again. We have so many indie titles. I mean, if you Google us, sometimes you will find our name in connotation with Terraria, even though we've only done the retail version. I think HeadUp published over 120 games in 10 years. So we never felt like we are this one publisher for Bridge Constructor because our focus was always on the smaller indie teams as well. It turned out to be our cash cow, which enabled us to fund a lot of other activities for great indie teams, to be fair. So our reputation within the audience, at least in the developer scene, was never, hey, these are the bridge constructor guys, but it was always like, hey, these are the guys who are doing Super Meat Boy or who are doing um, box versions of Super Meat Boy and so forth. So I never got to that stage that I felt like, hey, we are a one-brand company. With nearly a decade of experience making bridge constructor games, HeadUp and Clockstone probably weren't expecting any new take on the game. But then the LEGO group came calling. To understand how a developer and publisher with a decade's experience making bridge games came to work with a construction toy company, you just have to go back to a single moment in time. And Brian, this is where I probably should set the stage for you. It's 2018. Andersholm has been with the LEGO group for just three years. While he initially tried to land a job with LEGO Games back in 2014, he ended up joining as a platform architect instead. Four years ago, actually goes back to September, exactly four years ago, I joined LEGO Games and was part of an interview with Danny Bergman and Don Meadows, colleagues still in, in the LEGO Games team. And one of the cases that I needed to do for that interview was to um, make a case for a partnership or a, an opportunity for a mobile titles that can bring the Lego values into the mobile audience. We go back actually to that time at the Lego Games where the new mobile strategy was set in place, especially Danny and Don was driving that, going out to partners, finding good fits was right about that time. Titles like Lego Tower, Lego Brawls, and Lego Builder's Journey all came out of that funnel process. So I, during that interview, was uh, needed to present a case for one of uh, such titles that could fit into that mobile strategy. 
Okay, so we should probably unpack this a little bit. The LEGO group realized years ago that they needed to refine their mobile game strategy and shift away from creating free-to-play titles essentially designed as marketing vehicles. Right. Back then, most of the games were work-for-hire projects, and they didn't always have what we all like to refer to as LEGO DNA. So the company shifted its strategy and instead sought out interesting, cool development partners who could make awesome LEGO games. Titles that were meant to both stand on their own, but even make money. Yeah, so we're talking about games like Builder's Journey, uh, Lego Brawls, a lot of titles that we've actually talked about in this podcast series. Yes. Okay, so now back to the story. Anders is facing this challenge to come up with a neat idea for a new mobile video game. If he nails it, maybe he lands a job at Lego Games. So he thinks back, back to a time when he started with the company and a visit to the Lego house alongside some development partners. One of these things, and we continue to do that today, is that we invite the partners to sit in a Duplo pool and to build a bridge between the edges of that Duplo pool. So we literally sit, and that sort of stuck with me in terms of that building bridges, play with physicality of the Lego brick, and clutch power. I'm an introvert geek. So sitting in a Duplo pool with a lot of Lego house guests around you and building a bridge, you know, that was putting me a little bit out of the comfort zone. So that was also uh, why it's kind of stuck with me. But it's definitely the aspect of the teamwork. And actually, that quickly reminded me of the games I like to play, which is physical puzzle games. And then doing that in collaboration in that Duplo pool was pretty amazing. And we still do it. Now, jump back to Anders trying to come up with a game idea. He's playing a bunch of indies like World of Goo and Incredible Machines and Bridge Constructor Portal. And I thought that there must be something magical here if you use the Lego brick and the clutch power. At least how I played with Lego bricks when I was a kid was to make these contraptions. I played a lot of stunts in the dust game stunts and trying to make these bridges, physical bridges, and have my uh, pullback car drive over them and stuff like that to see if they were stable and all that. So there must be something around that that could, could also be incredibly fun in the digital space. And I thought that I believe that Bridge Constructor series have proven that together with World of Goo and these kind of titles. So, uh, and even Head Up and um, Clockstone has also made what is called Bridge Constructor Playground, a title that is more for the younger demographic, more easygoing, because I was also well aware that taking Bridge Constructor and call it Lego Bridge Constructor, might be too nerdy, too difficult, essentially. So Anders has this sort of aha moment, and he gets to work putting together a pitch as part of the interview process for the Lego games job. And included in that pitch was this idea of getting Clockstone to create Lego Bridge Constructor. There was no dialogue with Head Up or Clockstone from Bridge Constructor. It was all just me stealing images from, from Google and photoshopping uh, Lego bricks into their visuals. So it was all fakes. But if I remember correctly, I think my key points was that Lego games should be all about building with the brick. It should be about problem solving, about having uh, fun with failing and keep iterating your idea or your solution, which is all about these um, physical puzzle games where you build brick by brick or piece by piece. You constantly press play to see if you fail. And if you fail, you uh, you find it hilarious, you find it funny. 
uh, and I remember I took some examples from Bridge Constructor Portal and some other titles where it's actually fun to fail in these games because uh, hilarious things happened to the characters or the vehicles trying to get across the bridge. And there was these moments that you, you could learn a lot about these different things and learn about problem solving and having fun at the same time. That was sort of my key points. And then again, back to they have worked with an IP before and a quite restricted IP like Valve for Bridge Constructor Portal. And they also did Bridge Constructor Playground and thinking about the younger audience. So to me, that was a perfect fit. The LEGO games team liked the idea, but not as Anders presented it. Good thing too, because soon LEGO Bridge Constructor would become Brick Tales. That is what I love about game development, right? Because what I suggested was essentially not the right solution because I essentially pitched to do the same thing as they did with the Bridge Constructor Portal, which is a great game, but would not have been as fitting in a LEGO content. Uh, But what I suggested was LEGO Bridge Constructor, so a literal 2.5D built Lego bridges in a Lego city environment. I picked city as a theme because we have a lot of cool vehicles. It's relatable. And then essentially built bridges for Lego vehicles to drive across and do these one-by-one puzzles. Anders got the job, and about a week after he was hired, Don and Danny asked him if he had reached out to HeadUp yet. And then they just gave me the option to just run with it and cold call Dieter from HeadUp and talk about it and see if we should try to make something happen. Anders tracked down Dieter Schuller and struck up a conversation in 2019. Dieter explains. It was actually the LEGO group who approached us because they played Bridge Constructor Portal and they really liked the game and they said, okay, we have these core values defined for LEGO games and we feel that Bridge Constructor Portal isn't too far away from our core values. So how about we let this team pitch to us because they were looking for several different partners on mobile premium and then they gave us the chance to develop a concept and to pitch to them so they invited us and we had very good conversations and there was personal sympathy from day one to be fair chi and the team at clockstone put together a one-page pitch document to kick off an interactive process that involved a lot of back and forth communication the interesting thing was somewhere around january when we discussed this internally even though the step to make Lego and just combine it with Bridge Constructor, we were hesitant because we felt like it wouldn't be quite enough. We had the feeling that just Bridge Constructor as a pure bridge building game, the different scenarios that you can create with Lego would be just a little bit too limited. And that created the evolution where we thought to ourselves, well, is there something more that we can do? Can we broaden our horizons in a sense that we say, okay, is there a different way to frame this idea of surmounting obstacles, essentially, what bridge building is? Stefan said it was a long and fruitful journey getting from Lego Bridge Constructor to the core ideas that hold up the play and look of Bricktails. Very soon we stumbled upon new challenges that we didn't expect Those became actually pretty interesting, and these challenges, they now make the core of the game. So while we were preparing this pitch and we were using these sketches, we thought, okay, that could look better. (laughs) Obviously, drawing 
Lego bricks isn't really going to help much because it's way too much work. And so I tried to model the diorama out of bricks. And then I remember we had a few days to finish up this document and I started placing bricks individually, like thousands of them. And that didn't work out. So, <laughs> I mean, it did work out for the purpose of the pitch, but it was a good way to feel we need to think about tools a lot because placing bricks isn't that fun if you have to do it over and over again for thousands of bricks. Abhinav Sarangi, the LEGO Games producer on the title, said the teams ultimately came up with a few concepts to define the game. From my perspective, there are three pillars to this game. One being, you know, the puzzles and brick by brick building to solve puzzles. So that was one core pillar which was constant throughout the development. We were sure that we wanted brick by brick building and then using that to solve physics-based puzzles. That was one core aspect to the game. The second core pillar, as we touched upon, was dioramas. This idea that we can build beautiful worlds with the Lego brick, worlds which invite the players to you know come in and explore. So dioramas gave us a good vehicle for us to communicate the visual language of the game itself. The third core pillar was this adventure aspect that we talked about. We knew we wanted to bring the players on an adventure. And adventure, sort of the third core pillar supported the first two core pillars. The dioramas hinted at this idea of an adventure that you go into this fantastic worlds uh, to go and you know, solve puzzles. But puzzles also gave us an idea that the sol puzzle solving that you're doing is to you know help you progress through your adventure. So the three core pillars for this game were physics-based brick-by-brick building puzzles, dioramas, and adventure. While meaningful, those pillars were actually the outcome of a lot of trial and error. Andrew said many of those issues came up and were solved during prototyping. Among them, one intriguing problem was that real-world Lego bricks weren't very good at, well, breaking apart once built. So that's really, really funny because uh, one of the early prototypes they did, they really, really did an amazing job of trying to get as precise physical calculations as possible to really represent both the clutch power. And we provided them the data about them, the mass for our bricks and how the tolerance and all these kind of things. But that just concluded in a very, very easy game because essentially it was almost impossible to not make a bridge that would hold essentially because the clutch power was so strong and the vehicles we you drove over because in the first version they used the actual mass of the bricks they are not that heavy a lego vehicle so they sort of needed to fake it a bit <laughs> and to put some uh, yeah, more mass on the vehicles going over and, and play with the physics so it it worked better as a game in reality, those bricks are really, the connections are quite strong. This is Stefan. And we couldn't really find so many super interesting puzzles. I think we have some really nice ones where you get to know and play around with this physical aspect, but we could do much more there. And we bend the reality a little bit, so we can make things more interesting, obviously, by introducing heavier bricks. The team also puzzled out how best to allow players to build with digital Lego bricks, a mechanic that game developers have been refining for two and a half decades. Abhinav explains. One of the core pillars was brick by brick building, and we wanted to stay true to that. But it was a challenge all through the process. 
one of the things which was very clear early on when we started testing it with players that because most of the players that we were testing with had experience with playing with a physical Lego brick in 3D space, using their fingers to manipulate the Lego bricks in a 3D space, they had a certain expectations about how that works. When we tried to translate the 3D building experience into a 2D screen, we had to do a lot of things on the back end, trying to predict where a player wants to put their brick, you know, based on the movement speed of the mouse, as an example, based on where it was before and where the mouse is now. We had to go through a lot of iterations and a lot of testing to get that right where the building would feel intuitive, the building would feel like second nature. But on a 2D space on a screen, we are limited to the different camera angles. So one of the early things we did was put shadows to be able to tell players that the brick that you're holding is actually on this specific axis this far along on the screen because the depth of the field was not something which was very easy to communicate from a 2D screen perspective. And another major problem was how big the puzzle spaces could be. If you have a lot of bricks that you have to use to build the solution to a puzzle, it can get tiring as with physical bricks. But especially on a 2D screen, you know, having to build something which is 100, 150 bricks deep one of the solutions was kind of, you know, uh, make puzzles which were more restricted in how many bricks you'd need to get together to solve those puzzles. So it was an interesting journey to, you know, various aspects of trying to translate the ease of putting Lego bricks in a physical 3D space into a similar ease of putting the Lego bricks on a 2D screen with the use of a mouse and a keyboard. The result is a game with puzzles that are solved by building with bricks, brick by brick. Once a puzzle is solved by, say, building a bridge and successfully testing it, more bricks are unlocked and a player can go back and free build to really expand their construction. What we feel players would do is they would use it to you know, experiment with bricks. They would use it to be able to build things which uh, they feel really talks to them from a, you know, from a customization perspective. We have a small area that you can customize in-game, which you can customize with you know, small builds, which will allow you to kind of like, you know, put these builds in this area and decorate that area according to you know, how you feel like it. So I think we would see a lot of you know, customization come through that. One of the things which we want to encourage players is to you know, share what they are creating outside of the game, share it where, wherever they can, share it with friends. We'd love to see what players are building with the brick pallets that they have to encourage players to you know, go out and collect more of these bricks, uh, more of the brick pallet, so as to speak, so that you know, they can expand their library of bricks and build you know, more things that they can imagine. So I'm definitely looking forward to what players build with the, with the bricks that they collect in the game. By now, you, listener, may have sunk more time into the game than we have. But at the time that we were researching and recording this, Bricktails hadn't come out yet. Yes, but we were able to receive an early build, and it allowed both of us to spend quite some time playing it. Brian, what was it like for you uh, just firing up Bricktails for the first time and seeing it come to life? Man, the first thought I had was that it is such a colorful game. Yeah. It is so, uh, I don't know, so fun to look at. The first thing you do is, of course, 
you have to be sort of introduced into the world and into that story. Yeah. And it's funny, when, I know when we were doing interviews, you brought this up, that there is on some level a little bit of similarity between the storylines of Brick Tales and Builder's Journey. That's correct, yeah. In Builder's Journey, there's a father and a son. And in Bricktails, there's a grandfather and a grandchild. And their relationship is kind of established very quickly early on. Uh, matter of fact, I got a big kick out of what happens because basically the grandchild shows up and the grandfather makes a mistake. Immediately you're into a narrative and a story. Yeah, and that sets the stage for what becomes obviously this sort of globe-trotting Lego brick adventure that has you going between all of these, essentially these theme sets. Yeah. But yeah, the, the look, let's talk about the look because it's, oh man, it is just such a pretty, pretty game. And every level is presented as this, initially this sort of square diorama. Yeah that you can actually, I don't know if you did this, but you can back out or I guess when you first start, you could spin them around. Yep. And, and you'll find these like little hidden areas where you're like, oh, I haven't been there yet. How do I get over there? Yeah. It's so cool. The other thing too is because it's a building game, it really makes sure you understand the mechanics. And it does that through several little tutorials along the way. And it's really there to not only familiarize yourself again with digital building, which if you've done, you kind of know how to do, but it's more about you understanding the controls I think they have and, and the possibilities you have with those controls to make things either quicker or stack things quicker. Uh, there's quite a few great shortcuts. Yeah, now I played it on PC with a mouse and keyboard and a huge monitor. Yeah. I think you had it on Switch, is that right? I did, yes, I played it on Switch. So I'm curious, I didn't, I actually, I will say I did check it out on the Steam Deck, which it is uh, officially supported, yeah, which is cool. It is. But there is, a, yeah, it, it's like a different, obviously a different experience. What was it like for you to do that, uh, like picking up bricks and clicking them together with, uh, using the Switch? You know, because I'd played Builder's Journey, a lot of it, you know, picking up Lego bricks is something you're kind of familiar with. You navigate over there and scroll over there and you click the A button and you pick things up and rotate them. And, uh, but there are some shortcuts, some quicker buttons you can use, button combinations you can use to stack things, to set things, to organize it, to get ready for like a bigger build, for example. And I thought that was cool that there were different options than just pick a single brick and take that brick, but you can you know, obviously rotate it and you can also rotate the camera. So you're doing a lot with this digital sphere, uh, at least on the Switch, it was that way. And I guess we should talk a little bit about the sort of the core conceit yeah. of the game. And that is you're building something that could very easily not sustain itself. It's going to fall apart if you don't yeah. do it right. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because they talk a little bit about how they had to put a lot of work into that to make sure that, you know, basically they're cheating a little bit because probably in reality, these structures would hold up. What I found interesting though was as I played the game, I could very quickly within a level sort of figure out by looking at it like, oh, this thing's going to fall apart. It needs to support here. Yeah. So it's not, it doesn't put you off, you know? And a lot of it comes back to just our sense of how the Lego brick works in the physical world, right? So if you were in the real world trying to build a bridge or connecting two platforms or whatever, you would have to use a certain set of bricks. And then, you know, if my son were to take a little car and drive over it with that, I could pretty much tell from looking at it if it's going to hold up or not, right? So there's this kind of visual element element to it too, where you can just 
assess right from the get-go, kind of like, oh, this is looking pretty shady, Ethan. I don't know if this is going to hold anything up. Yeah, you know, and what I think is fascinating is how quickly your brain adjusts to what are essentially these sort of tweaked in-game physics. Because as they had said in our interview, like, in the real world, if the bridge was that short, maybe it would hold up. <laughs> but, like, your brain, like, snaps to it. You're like, okay, it failed once. You're like, all right, I understand the physics now. I know yeah. that in this world, this is the length it can take. One of the other things I found that was hilarious is, so you're building this stuff, and I think, at least for me, my first instinct was just, okay, I'm going to just slap this thing together. (laughs) I get it done. I don't care what it looks like. Yep, I did the same thing. And I remember thinking when they're like, oh, you can go back and, you know, we've unlocked more bricks for you. And I'm like, the first level, the first time I did this, I was like, I'm not going to do that. The second one, though, I was like, oh, maybe I'll spend... You know, let me let me just see what I could do. And then like three hours later, <laughs> you know, I'm like three hours later. <laughs> it's like exactly. It's so fun. <laughs> it is fun. And a lot of it I think does come back to the look like you talked about. Uh, you know, Bricktails, you know, just has this way of looking like it's fun to play with, right? So even just the optics on its own lure you into to wanting to do more. So like when you said when you unlocked that new brick palette, you're like, well, maybe actually, you know what, let me try this little brick. And so it it really, the art direction on this game, I think, really opens it up for fun and building fun. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought was hilarious was, so what I did, the first time I did that was you had to do this long bridge. It's early in the game. And I just did a quick little long bridge. And then I went back and I made it a covered bridge. But then it's like, oh, we're still going to test it. And I was like, no, <laughs> don't don't test it. <laughs> it's going to fall apart. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yeah, again, I think that all comes back to this beautiful palette and yeah. art direction and design that it has. And that they also decided to turn each level into this kind of standalone diorama, Brian. But we should probably get back to the story, right, and the history here. We kind of geeked out there for a little bit. Yeah, and we could talk forever about this. So getting back to the story, Clockstone was very aware that TT Games essentially redefined what it meant to be a Lego game. And they didn't, you know, Clockstone didn't want to mimic the visual style of those games. So early on, they bought into the idea of presenting a world made entirely of Lego bricks. But actually, it was another game, a Nintendo title, that inspired these eye-catching dioramas of Bricktails. In 2014, Nintendo released Captain Toad Treasure Tracker for the Wii U. The game stars the eponymous Toad as he journeys around tiny isometric minigames by rotating perspectives around dioramas. Definitely, yeah. This was one of the key inspirations for the game from the start. This is Stefan. Captain Toad does something that we were not able to do. And I think that's why we are at a point now where we are finally seeing the final form of the game. And it's like the same for every game developer, perhaps, that in the end you just finally see, okay, this is how our game is looking and this is how it plays. And then you see all this untapped potential that's still there. So Captain Toad does so many things with changing the environment, like interactions that really change the basic structure and opens up new pathways. This is something that could be huge for Lego dioramas as well. We are limited to a more static version of a diorama now, but in the future, I think it would be super exciting to have more dynamic elements because those bricks that make up these parts in the minds of the player, they still exist. And it would be super exciting to tap into that and change more of the environment. 
While the inspiration may have been Captain Toad, Stefan noted that the building diorama for the game levels actually solved a number of design challenges. We kind of have a limited amount of space we want to work in, so we don't want to have an open world. So we kind of have to think about borders of the space you are able to walk around. And the other thing is the technical background. There were a lot of challenges when you create a large world out of Lego bricks. They take a lot of polygons if you're placing thousands of bricks, so we have to think about how to reduce that complexity. The problem was that a computer would pretty quickly get bogged down once you start packing a level with all the Lego bricks needed to create a scene. In the beginning, we wanted to make big dioramas where the whole story of a world should take place in one diorama. And we were kind of forced to iterate on that idea. So the first one was just the performance aspect because everything's too slow if our dioramas were too big. Initially, we wanted to have dioramas that were about four by four base plates, so 196 studs. Then we went down to three by three base plates. And now in the end, we use 96 for our biggest dioramas. But it's not only a technical limitation, but it's also for aesthetics because actually we found out that it just looks better if you have a diorama in front of you and every time you look at the diorama you can see those bricks it really works better it feels better and it reminds you of the physical lego bricks and we want to have those memories always in the mind of the player so the bricks should always be visible and the bigger and the far you are out you can't like individually see the bricks as soon as the team settled on the dioramas, everything clicked together. They also found some other games to look at. For instance, Lara Croft Go and Hitman Go both use a sort of diorama look to them. And then there's Lego Builder's Journey, which we did two episodes on. And it also, of course, used dioramas to great success. Here's Chi. So it was definitely an inspiration. Like we were aware of it even back then when it was only available on mobile. We didn't really dive too deeply into the details of it. We did have some exchange. It might have been the beginning of 2021 where we would get together and have like a call with the people at Lightbreak. So they talk about their experience of how they made Lego Builders Journey and how they went on about it. And obviously the challenges that they faced. I mean, also in particular, because I do remember they had Lego levels and they needed to scale it down just to, you know, execute their vision of the game. So at this point, it became clear that what we were doing diverged to a certain degree because our dioramas are so much larger by like a factor of eight or something like that. And also the building mechanics are more extensive in the sense that you have to be able to build, you know, things that have a higher brick count, that fulfill certain goals, so we needed to approach this a little bit differently. While the physics and play of the game were solved early in the process, and the look of the game and use of dioramas helped gel Bricktail's captivating look, there was still one more hurdle, the story. The thing needed to pull everything together and help identify what sort of theme sets to include. Here's Chi. The general idea is that you walk around and you help people by building. That's the abstract description of the game. But then we thought, like, why not just take this and move this into the internal logic of the story? 
So you're almost like, hey, you are a superhero of sorts and you walk around and you help people by building. And the more we just continued that train of thought, the more interesting it became, especially in the times that we've gone through, you know, because at the end of the day, 2020, a pandemic hits and everything else. We felt like, especially in combination with the wholesome quality that Lego has, we felt like it would fit to just play it as straight as possible to say, this is the story. You run around, you help people. And by helping people, you actually get something, in our case, the happiness crystals that you collect that you can directly use to transform the park and help your grandfather. So it was very much driven around this idea of having a wholesome story, of wanting to emphasize the story aspect that you run around and you help people by building. That framework for the story fit in neatly with one of the game's key pillars, as Abhinav told us. Adventure as one of the core pillars was something which I think Clockstone really wanted to explore. In their previous games, they had not had the opportunity to really tell a story. And Lego Bricktails provided them with the vehicle where you know, they really wanted to be able to use the medium, uh, medium of the Lego bricks, but also the Lego group IP to be able to tell a specific story which was close to their hearts. So when we started talking about this game, adventure was something which Clockstone was really certain that they want to really explore and really want to communicate through the players. It did provide us with a great vehicle to go from point A to point B beyond just solving the puzzles. One of the things which the Lego IP does really well is to add a bit of fantasy, a bit of fun to anything that we sort of like add it to. So... I think we really leaned on the fantasy and the fun aspect of the Lego IP in the adventure where in this game you get teleported into different worlds, which does not make any sense, but you know, it makes sense in a Lego perspective. You collect happiness crystals, which you know doesn't really make a lot of sense from a real world perspective, but it makes sense, you know, from the Lego IP perspective. So I think this levity which the Lego IP brings really helped Clockstone to tell this story that they wanted to tell. Next, the team started spitballing ideas for themes and settings. We just collected ideas what would make sense. Here's Chi. Visually, that was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was just we were looking at the classics of Lego, you know, sets that are very well known and people have a lot of fondness for. And we say, okay, are there any interesting ones that we can pick out? And we... We decide. I mean, the particular set that we have right now, we was decided essentially to play the classics in a way. Maybe with the exception of Desert that we picked because it has just visually such a strong contrast to go into the desert. But the other ones, especially, I mean, City and Medieval are very classic ones, you know, where everybody knows the sets, those sort of things. Bricktails feels like a bit of a turning point for Clockstone, a game that is the culmination of a decade's worth of design and development centered on the joy of catastrophic and often cinematic failure. With the game now released, Stefan says the studio is pondering what to do next. We have a meeting lined up <laughs> after this call where we are talking about the future of our company. So it really opens up new possibilities for us, even if all the things that we learned during this project, like... We're super motivated, obviously, to keep it interesting with Bricktails as well. And we are thinking quite about new ideas. But 
we learned a lot about our company and what we actually want. So I think working with a bigger company like the Lego Group and all the super nice individuals was really a push forward for us. Dieter says he's happy with what the studio achieved, especially considering where this all started so long ago. I think we found the right mix of puzzles versus story versus world exploration. For me, for my part, for example, I, I'm a bad person. I always skip storylines in games, but I really enjoy myself running around in those little dioramas and doing the puzzles, while other players will definitely enjoy the storyline and the humor of the game. I think we hit a pretty sweet spot on the humor side. From the LEGO Group's perspective, they're very excited with everything they've seen of the game, the overwhelmingly positive reaction to the public demo release, and the building hype surrounding the release. Here's Apanov. People have been saying that you know they, they'd love to be able to kind of you know, build solutions their own way, uh, be able to do brick by brick building to be able to solve these puzzles. So everything I've heard of from players still now has been really exciting. So I'm really looking forward to you know uh, sharing the game with you know wider audience and you know learning from what players have to say uh, and use this uh, to to be able to provide a play experience which hopefully players have not seen before and you know hopefully something which players really enjoy. And what about Anders, whose moment in a tub of Duplo seemingly sparked an idea that Clockstone wove into digital gold? I hope it finds this audience that I was part of. I'm a part of that audience that liked these problem solving with the Lego brick. And I feel like if I look at the comments on Twitter and Facebook and Steam, when new screenshots or trailers has been pushed out, people that are saying that that is the Lego experience, they remember when playing with it on the floor uh, <laughs> when they were kids, right? So I actually built these contraptions and built cars to drive over these things. So I obviously hope and believe it will do quite well. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescenti and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescenti. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Mango Lindinger and Andreas Holzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Disclaimer voice is Ben Ungren. Music by Peter Primer and foundermusic.com. We'd like to thank our participants, Minchi Dodin, Andres Takrit Holm, Abinav Sarangi, Dieter Schöller, and Stefan Sosau. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks.